Al Jazeera Podcasts. This is the sound of a helicopter flying over the Red Sea. It's heading toward an enormous cargo ship. Fast forward, and armed men in black uniform jump out to seize control of the ship. I'm at your service, Gaza. I'm at your service, Gaza. It's from a video released by Yemen's Houthi rebels, also known as Ansarullah, last November. And the helicopter has both the Palestinian and the Yemeni flags on it. The Houthis announce they stand with Palestine against Israel's war on Gaza. Yemen's Houthi rebels have claimed responsibility for a series of drones and missiles launched towards Israel's coastal holiday city of Ilat. The Houthis say they won't stop targeting ships they deem linked with Israel, despite an attack by U.S. forces and growing military buildup. All of this in one of the world's most important maritime trade routes. The Houthis' attacks on shipping in the Red Sea has massive reverberations in terms of global economic activity, in terms specifically of Israeli economic activity. So how much of an impact does this have on the global and Israeli economy? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. My name is Lale Khalili, and I'm a professor of Gulf Studies at the University of Exeter in the UK. Thank you for joining us, Lale. You have traveled the Mediterranean, the Indian Ocean, and the Red Sea aboard gigantic container ships, all in the name of research. Is that right? Yes, indeed. Some of the best research I have ever done. (laughs) So in 2015 and 2016, Um, In the process of doing research for a book called uh, Sinews of War and Trade, which is about shipping and capitalism in the Arabian Peninsula, I ended up getting on uh, two different massive container ships um, by the shipping company CMACGM. And it is today the third largest shipping company in the world. So I got onto these big ships. Uh, In both instances, I went from Malta to the port of Jabal Ali in Dubai, which is um, usually in the top 10 list of ports in the world. And um, so I actually got to traverse that route twice. And so I got quite a bit of an experience, interesting experience of what it's like to be on a container ship in those times. Mm, I bet. I know that you're working on a new book um, about the same subject soon to come out. So what does it feel like? What does it look like? What's that experience like? So the ships are enormous. Somewhere I read that one of these bigger ships is the size of the Empire State Building if the Empire State Building was laid on its side. Wow. Um, you know, they are enormous. So while I was um, on the ship, um, I, as part of exercise, I would go walking around the deck. And that was, uh, it actually was substantially more than a mile. Some of these ships carry something like 20,000 or more containers on them. What is astonishing about them is that despite having these enormous amounts of cargo, they usually have no more than 20 to 30 seafarers working on them. So you're in this, what is essentially a maritime city with only 20 or 30 people on it. They work four hours on and four hours off, for example. 
they have very specific hierarchies um, at the dinner table where people sit, for example, uh, the officers sit on one side and the crew members often sit on another side. With such a rigid protocol and, and hierarchy of how things work on the ship for efficiency's sake, I can only imagine what it must then feel like when everything is thrown out of whack because your ship is attacked. So let's talk about these Houthi attacks on ships in the Red Sea. I know you've been following them. They're in retaliation, the Houthis say, against Israel's war on Gaza. Now, those ships pass through a very narrow strait called Bab al-Mandab. And it's hard to get a full picture without looking at a map, so I've pulled one up here. Can you walk us through the route that those ships take? What is the significance of that strait? Okay, so if you imagine the Red Sea, the Red Sea looks like the letter Y. Its leg begins at Bab al-Mandab, which connects it to the Indian Ocean, and it splits into its two arms at the Gulf of Suez and the Gulf of Aqaba. The Gulf of Suez goes up to the Suez Canal. The Gulf of Aqaba ends in Eilat and Aqaba. Aqaba being in Jordan, Eilat happens to be the main southern port of Israel, on, well, the only port on the Gulf of Aqaba. Bottom end of the Red Sea, the bottom of the Y, is of course the Bab al-Mandab, which is a strait What's amazing about it, it is an actually very narrow passage of only around 29 kilometers. And when you're on a ship in the Bab al-Mandab, you can actually, if it's not hazy, you can see both sides. And what is amazing is that, of course, because the Suez Canal is such a significant channel of trade, something like 12% of the world trade in both directions goes through Bab al-Mandab from Europe to Asia. But it is also one of the most important channels for the transportation of oil, because, of course, oil goes from the Gulf, Persian slash Arabian Gulf, all the way around the Arabian Peninsula and often through the Red Sea in order to come to Europe. So it's quite an important destination for oil, almost above everything else. Oh, my goodness. So completely strategic. Very so the Houthis say they only target ships linked to Israel. The Yemeni armed forces confirm that they will continue to prevent all ships of all nationalities heading to the Israeli ports from navigating in the Arab and Red Seas until they bring in food and medicine that our steadfast brothers in the Gaza Strip need. But several international companies have decided to avoid that route. What do you believe the Houthis are trying to achieve based on what they say and based on what your research says? So there are several things about the Houthi activity that is really interesting. Number one is that their attacks are not quite like some of the attacks that we have seen in other instances where commercial ships, commercial vessels have been targeted by combatants. What is distinct about the Houthi instance is that at least at the beginning, what they were doing is they were actually, in a sense, forcing ships to come to birth in Yemen itself rather than hitting them in any way. Later, they started actually sending off drones in order to attack ships that were going to be going to Israel. Now, owned by Israel or flagged to Israel, and those could be two different things because you can have a ship that is owned, for example, by Zim, which is a big shipping company, an Israeli shipping company, but, for example, they fly the flag of Liberia. 
Also, because it is easy to see actually where a ship is going to, they have also been either attacking or sort of arresting in their language ships that have been touching Israeli ports, meaning ships that have been delivering goods from usually Asia. Asia are actually, I should say, also Middle Eastern countries that, for example, send oil to Israel. Eilat is significant because it is the uh, start, the opening of a pipeline called the Eilat Askelan or Eilat Ashkelon pipeline in Israel. And so there are actually ships, particularly from the United Arab Emirates, which have been taking oil through the Gulf of Aqaba to Eilat. And of course, the Houthis are affecting this. Now, the aims of the Houthis are multifold. A basic element of increasing their own power, visibility and prestige domestically, which gives them a hand in whatever negotiations they have with their rivals domestically. But there are other factors involved. The Houthis, both because of the particular geopolitical position they've taken, and also because they have close relationships with Iran, are trying to affect the politics of Israel in some ways. And so by doing this activity, what they're trying to do is to politically isolate Israel. And I think that that's where they have most succeeded. After the break, where does all of that leave the global and Israeli economy? It is the year 2065, and nature has been given the same rights that humans and corporations enjoy in the 2020s. A climate refugee kills an animal for food. The defendant was eating the victim. And a reluctant lawyer is assigned his case. They have you personally pinned for an act of extinction. Since when is feeding your family a crime? The Last Impala, Unnecessary Tomorrows, a new podcast by Doha Debates and Al Jazeera. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. So, Lale, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken demanded the Houthis stop their attacks on ships in the Red Sea. And he said on Monday that those attacks are affecting 15% of global commerce. If it continues, uh, there have to be consequences. So our strong view, our strong preference is that the Houthis get the message that they're receiving from countries around the world that this needs to stop. And the U.S. has announced a naval coalition to ward off further attacks. How much is this going to impact global trade? So I do think it is going to impact global trade. This morning I was checking uh, the news and I was noticing in a newsletter about shipping which mentioned that 95% of containers, uh, containerized trade that actually goes through the Suez Canal um, has been forced to be rerouted around the Cape of Good Hope along the southern tip of Africa. Now, one of the things that was also, I was looking at the news this morning, was that Chinese firms, Chinese shipping firms, are one by one stopping to go through the Red Sea or they announce very publicly that they will stop going to Israeli ports. So Costco, which is one of the biggest ones, announced that they will no longer carry goods to or from Israeli ports, which is essentially what the Houthis wanted. Now, shipping companies are bracing for weeks of disruption to their normal routes after several of them announced they would avoid passing through the Red Sea. And so it's because it allows for political, political and commercial isolation of Israel. 
And so I think that that, in a sense, it is enacting uh, a de facto boycott by these particular shipping firms on Israel, which I think is part of the reason why the U.S. foreign policy establishment, which has always been 150% in support of Israel, is um, a little bit unhappy about the process. Thank you for breaking that down. The ripple effects really are so vast. So what about the actual intended target? How much of an impact does all of this have on Israel's economy? I suspect that this doesn't have as much direct impact, at least in the short term, on Israel's economy. The fact of the matter is that Israel actually depends for its electricity generation or energy needs, either on natural gas, which it gets from the Mediterranean fields that it has, or from coal, which it gets from South Africa, which can come through the Mediterranean, Although, of course, as you can imagine, that does take a little bit longer. And so its energy needs are not necessarily affected by this. And because Israel's most significant cargo ports are actually on the Mediterranean, then its commerce is not affected as much as one would imagine. I think where this does have an impact is politically. The fact that there is a de facto boycott is of a lot more significance than had there been an economic effect um, of these Houthi attacks. So significant that the threats by the United States and a coalition of other nations has backing behind it. It's backed by action. So I want to pivot to that because earlier we talked about the naval coalition that warned the Houthis against further attacks. U.S. forces then sunk three Houthi boats, killing 10 fighters on December 31st. The U.S. Defense Department saying four boats with Houthi rebels from Yemen firing on U.S. Navy helicopters. Those choppers firing back, sinking three of the four ships and killing all crew members on board. Then Iran deployed a warship to the Red Sea, saying it was to safeguard shipping lanes. The Houthis say they will not stop as long as Israel's war on Gaza continues. So what does that mean for the region, the world, and the economy? Because this doesn't look like it's ending anytime soon. I think it's really important to have a realistic measure of what this operation is. It seems to me that the only real uh, kind of military force that is being put behind it comes from the US. And there was an announcement that a couple of British ships are joined. Of course, Britain is like a poodle of the US. And so, of course, it's going to send three ships. Uh, Everybody else who's got their name as part of the coalition of Operation Prosperity Guardian has their name on it. But in some cases, it's only like a couple of officers that are assigned here. You've got Bahrain and Seychelles Uh, in the case of Bahrain, because they're sort of the operation center for the naval convoys that patrol the region. Seychelles, in part because they're worried about the Red Sea, but almost everybody else who's making noises about this process is choosing not to put their ships under the command of the United States. So France is not doing so, India and Pakistan are not doing so, and what they're doing is they're actually sending naval ships to convoy with their commercial vessels. What that indicates is that despite the fact that everybody is paying lip service to the question of freedom of navigation and freedom of operation in the seas, there's probably quite a lot of backroom pressure going on in order to push Israel to cease fire in Gaza so that at least some semblance of normalcy can be 
retained and regained in shipping and in commerce around the region. Whether or not that is going to have any effect, it really is difficult to say, in part because the US is acting so incredibly irrationally and so against its own national interests in so many different ways that it is hard to predict how it's actually going to operate and how this will all turn out in the longer term. Finally, Lale, let's end back on the Red Sea. Um, take us back to a container ship and if you could put us in the shoes of some of those seafarers and what it must have felt like to encounter a Houthi helicopter and or drone and armed men jumping onto your container ship and then what it must feel like to hear your company is going to reroute or avoid that area altogether. What an excellent question, because one of the things that people never do when they're talking about the geopolitics of naval warfare is actually the ordinary seafarers that are caught in between and who have nothing to do with any of this, but who are often end up being the sort of the casualties, even in causes that might be righteous. So I think that that's a, I'm, I'm really grateful that you asked that. Seafarers are often uh, quite anxious when I was on the ships that were going through the Red Sea, despite the fact that there had been a very dramatic drop in the number of piracy attacks, there was nevertheless a whole series of measures put into place when you went through the Red Sea. And those measures included such things as, for example, closing the hatches, safe rooms, and increasing the number of people who were on watch. Russian flagships and Israeli ships often have armed guards on board, but the ships that I was on certainly didn't. And there's quite a lot of anxiety also by the ship owners because any kind of activity such as this also exposes you to, for example, raised insurance claims. And being rerouted might actually end up adding a few weeks to your contract, which is also really annoying because if you've been at sea for nine months, and you're really ready to go home, two extra weeks actually feels like quite a lot. In a lot of instances, seafarers would feel a lot safer going through areas where they don't feel like that the, the, they could potentially be exposed to missiles or attacks or, uh, or boardings by unwanted um, forces. And so I think there's an element of this that is really interesting, which is that when the Houthis started, they in fact didn't do anything to target the seafarers specifically. But as things have escalated, one of the threats that they have put forward is that they might attack, actually, ships. And I think that that, of course, is a cause of concern. And that is also one of the reasons why shipping companies are choosing in very large numbers to reroute around the Horn of Africa. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Siri Al-Khalili and Faranisa Campana, with Amy Walters, Nagin Oliayi, Chloe Kaylee, Miranda Lynn, David Enders, Khalid Sultan, Ashish Malhotra, Sonia Bagat, Zaina Bezer, and me, Malika Bilal. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer, and Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back. <laughs>